Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest was a music major and a classical pianist. She was discovered, we use that broadly, as a waitress by a customer who recruited her into the insurance business. At 22, she started her own insurance agency. She is currently serving as the Chief Deputy Commissioner for North Carolina Department of Insurance, and she has been working in the insurance industry since 1990, where she has started two insurance agencies from scratch. She's worked as a manager for a Fortune 500 insurance company, so she's got a lot of experience in insurance, but we're going to have a twist on this today. She previously was a professor at Campbell University and an adjunct professor at North Carolina State University and North Carolina Wesleyan. She earned her MBA from Campbell University and a doctorate of business administration from George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. Her passions include music and writing. And this year, she co-authored the book, The Maid, which brings awareness to the heinous crimes of human trafficking. Please welcome the Chief Deputy Commissioner for North Carolina Department of Insurance and author, Dr. Michelle Flynn Osborne. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Dr. Gary. Thank you so much for having me today. Gosh, there's so many so many things to talk about. Uh, having a career shift from a classical pianist and waitress to the insurance business at a young age, which is fascinating. And now, of course, that is your profession, working on that. But I, I'm, I'm also guessing that uh, while you were going through all this, you got your degrees after you went into the insurance business, because it looks like you started that early on, and uh, got your DBA like I did later in life. That's correct. I, I don't think any of us, when we're in the insurance industry, I don't think we ever choose to go into the insurance industry. I teasingly say we're often like the misfits, um, because most folks do not understand that the insurance industry does provide a great a way to make a living. So, but it's been good to me, but still my passion's music. And um, I, I love sharing in, in many capacities, my passions and hobbies. Yeah, but not, not just that, but I mean, we all, just about all of us have some form of insurance, car insurance, life insurance, homeowners insurance. It protects us from from large losses. I mean, it's, uh, it's an important part of our life in this country. So I think when we talk to leaders, regardless of what profession we're in, we always have to talk about the why, you know, why do you, why do you do this? Well, I think you're correct. And I think when we're making a living, we first of all do it because we have to pay our bills. But I have found that the insurance industry fits me very well because insurance provides for you when bad things happen. And we always have something usually that happens to us in our lifetime that we need help. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what, uh, what, at what point did you decide that you were going to go on and get an MBA and a doctorate? <laughs> well, as I was working in the insurance industry, I recognized that I needed more knowledge. And I, and I realized that I needed to have more information with regards to finance and, and business. 
So I took the opportunity because the company that I worked for provided me free education. And I think we should always take every opportunity that we can to, to learn more because we know knowledge is power. Yeah. So just as an aside, do you still play the piano today? Absolutely. That's that's my happy yeah. place, yes. So after a long, hard day, I always like to go and, and stroke those ivory keys. I, I love to play. It's too bad you don't have one in your office. We'd hear a few uh, a few riffs now, but we'll have to try that another time. So you go into the insurance agency, you you do that work, you're you're now working for the state. But I, I want to talk about this this other part of your life that you've gotten into that's really, really important. This book, The Maid, which is about human trafficking. Uh, talk to me about how you got, first of all, what what drove you to that and and why did you write this book? What what happened? So when I was working on my doctorate. I had heard, you know, how much poverty was in the world, but when I was studying economics, it really hit me like it had never hit me before, that there at the time was about 7.5 billion people living in the world, and 5 billion people lived at that time on less than $3 a day. Now we have about 8 billion people, and we have about that amount proportionately that live on less than $5 a day. And when, when I realized that, I, 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 first of all, I was taken back about how, how blessed I was. And, and now I look back and I see it, was, it really was my journey to where I am today, that, that time and realizing that there were so many people suffering. So as I continued to study economics, and I started wondering, why is it in the 21st century we have so much poverty? And then it led mm-hmm. me to the study of child labor. And... I became very passionate about stopping uh, or wanting to help stop child labor. And I was very upset about sweatshop factories. Then I kept researching and found that 50,000 children had been laid off from their jobs because as Americans, we boycotted their products. Mm. And it really made me think, you know, just like America, uh, at one point in our history, we used child labor. And some countries are still developing, and the developing countries are still struggling. And then I found out that most of these children ended up in criminal activities or were human trafficked. So then it just kept, this research just kept leading me into more desire to, to try to see, you know, what could be done. And I'm, I'm just a very small person, but I thought if I were going to do research for my doctorate and my, my dissertation, why not choose something that was meaningful to me? So I started studying different countries and finding out which countries had the greater issues with human trafficking. And from that, I learned that there are three tiers in human trafficking. There's what they call a trafficking report that's provided to us by our government. And within that, it provides every year all the statistics of human trafficking. Uh, COVID has is, is, is actually uh, brought even uh, greater issues to, the, to this, and I might share with that later on. Mm. The three tiers, United States is tier one. And to give you an example, at the time when I was studying my doctorate, I was planning to go to Thailand to do research there because they were a tier three. So I was able to get opportunity to teach. And then all of a sudden, Thailand declared martial law. And the university said, you cannot go to Thailand and do this research because there's too much liability for them. So I had to choose another country. So I, I looked back again at the tiers to see which countries were struggling. And lo and behold, Costa Rica 
which we think of as such a beautiful place, was a two and a half. So again, there's three tiers. Tier one, United States. Tier three, Thailand. Costa Rica was in at two and a half. So I thought, well, this would be a very interesting study. And because when a country loses or when they get to a tier two watch list or two and a half watch list, there's concern whether or not they will continue to get support from the international bank. Mm. Because the GDP, when countries struggle with the GDP in their economy, then, of course, they get help. And when they get to a tier three, a lot of the funds are, are, are um, taken away. So I was able to get to Costa Rica. And when I got there, I did studies on hotels. And, and I also did studies with all regards to human trafficking. In Costa Rica, um, prostitution is legal. And there's two separate uh, laws for how old you can be to work. And 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds are allowed to work. There's two different laws. So there's there's two different labor laws in Costa Rica? Yes, with, with regards to children. One was 12 and one's 15. So poverty there, you wouldn't think that there's a lot of poverty in Costa Rica because we think of it as a tourist area that we like to go to to visit. But if you go down into the villages, you will still see a lot of struggling families. So the children can dress up and, you know, become prostitutes. And age 12 and 15, it's not allowed. But children are allowed to work at age 12 or age 15. Right. And the laws are not always enforced. So you will be able to find younger adults or teenagers working in prostitution, in, in, in prostitution. Did this did this surprise you when you, you got there and you saw all of this? Was this a shock to you? It was because Costa Rica is a wonderful country and good people. And the government really is trying, and really even more so now, especially when it got to a two and a half watch list. But I think as we in the United States that we can't grasp is that we don't have as much poverty. I mean, there are some that have poverty here in the United States, but the country in and of itself has a lot of poverty still in the villages. The children can't even afford, afford their uniforms. So many of them drop out of school. So yeah, it was shocking. Well, I think, I think in our country, I mean, when you think about this, if people look around and, and they think they see poverty, but they are not seeing anything even close to what some of these third world countries are going through. And the level of poverty, I mean, you're talking about people that don't have food and water. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, w- I want to back up for a second because you've talked about this, this kind of educational process that you went through. Mm-hmm. Right. And it sounds like you focused a lot in your DBA on economics. I did. You got into economics and started looking at poverty. You started looking at child labor and that took you into what we'll be talking about with uh, trafficking. Mm-hmm. So there was this kind of this process that you went through of awareness. Mm-hmm. And I, I can just imagine with some of this stuff, you, as things unfold and the work that we do in leadership is all about awareness, you know, whether it's the kind of stuff you're talking about or just being aware of myself and the way I communicate. But I, I, I just get this sense, this feeling as you talk about this, it's kind of like, well, I'm kind of looking into this and go, oh, you know, unintended consequences. We boycott something and 50,000 kids are out of work. Those, that small amount of, of money that they're making is helping their family buy food That's right. to be able to survive, right? So we don't realize we just put 50,000 kids out of, out of work and families at risk by doing this. It's, it's an unintended consequence. And this happens all the time. Mm-hmm. But in awareness, you sit there and you go, okay, so I, I'll look into poverty. 
holy crap, child labor. Wow. That's, that's not a good thing. Holy crap. Unintended weight, you know, and uh, consequences. They're out of, they're out of work. And now they're the family. Holy crap. We got human trafficking. We've got prostitution, 12, 15 year old kids. I mean, this had to be like very eye opening for you. It was, it was truly matter of fact, I was sharing earlier that my music background, it, it really caused me to even write music <laughs> because it, it really impacted me emotionally. And so when mm. I, when I am emotionally impacted, I used to go to the keyboard. And so, yeah. And so then what ended up happening is I started meeting these victims. I that was separate from, from the, from the research that I did with regards to my doctorate because the, the university did not want me to, to write, you know, or get the interviews for the children because of the liability. And I totally understood that. Mm. But I was able to get their stories, and that was even more impactful. Um, and and again, it just it kept uncovering and uncovering, and and I, I I will never be the same because I I realized that there's just such a need for for these victims. So can you can you share one of those stories with us that that really uh, impacted you? Yeah. So I started going uh, with some missionaries actually through the villages, and there was a 11 year old girl. And she allowed me to hold her baby, and she had been um, human trafficked, and she was pregnant. And she, I mean, she got pregnant age 10 and half, which is most, I mean, it's hard to believe, but I yeah. held her baby, and she did not abort her baby. She chose to keep her baby and was able to get out of human trafficking, and she's one of the victims. And then I interviewed another victim who was human trafficked from Nicaragua to uh, Costa Rica, she was working in the coffee beans uh, fields, and she was promised a job as a maid in the hotel. So she came to Costa Rica with the hopes of having a nice job compared to what she had known as a child. She was 15, and he took her passports, locked them up, and she ended up being the maid, who was the main character in the book. And mm-hmm. it, she, was prosti- you know, she was forced to, into prostitution. But even worse than that is that she was forced to sell children and to train the children to be prostitutes. And I, I was the first person that she ever shared the story to as an inter, you know as an interviewee. And so that's where the book came from, the maid. Mm. And so and there were other stories, but this is not in a in a really in a desolate place. This is happening amongst where the tourists are, which leads me to another thought. What my research showed is that where there's tourism, and this was way back in 2012, 13, and 14 when I was seeing this with my research, that where there's tourism, there's usually human trafficking. Mm. And the problem is is that most folks don't see it, don't recognize it. And it's, it's, it is happening in the United States. North Carolina is number nine with regards to human trafficking. And it's growing. And with our borders, with COVID, it's, it's a real problem. So there's factors that we need to look for, and we need to be aware that it's not just happening in developing countries. It's happening in the United States, and it's happening in our backyards. That, that's got to be very emotional and disconcerting to even just think about that. You know, just listening to you talk about it, it it's, it's disturbing. It's something that we don't like to think about. And yeah. something that we don't want to imagine. But when you see these victims and you hear their stories, 
it's, it's really, it's really tough. It's really tough to live their lives through their stories. And, and also we're, we're finding that if we don't get more SBI agents and more help because our population continues to grow as population grows, we're going to continue to have more of these issues. In North Carolina, the SBI did not have enough uh, officers, uh, trained officers in human trafficking. And last year, the legislation actually gave them more money to get more human trafficking uh, police officers. I have 45 sworn police officers that report to me as, as a result of being the chief deputy. And believe it or not, we are dealing with cases right now in the Department of Insurance with regards to human trafficking. And what has been so such an interesting journey for me, as you said earlier, I was a classical pianist. <laughs> and somehow I ended up serving as the chief deputy in insurance. Um, and now I'm dealing with um, human trafficking as chief deputy uh, with our 45 sworn police officers and um, you know trying to figure out how to deal with this in the insurance industry. So talk to me, you know, this, this podcast is about leadership is a responsibility, not a position. That's right. And you have a position though, that you can make a difference, but like anybody in any position, you, you, you have to have a passion for doing something to make a difference and not just letting things continue to be the way they are. So talk to me a little bit, if you can, about what you're doing. What are we able to do? What's the what's this book done for you in bringing this book out and and making people aware? Has is it it's it's published? It's out there. How is how is it helping? So it's a, that's that's a great question for me. So the interesting thing is, I've been able to share the stories of these children and share the stories of these victims. As a result of that, I've had some folks. I do not take the money, but they've they've said they want to help. So I share with them where to send the money to help these victims because there are some great places for these, these children to be helped, to prevent it, and then to help them to overcome it if, if they've had to experience such tragedy. Another thing that, we, that, that I'm hoping to do is I, I want to continue to help sell the book, not for money, but more for awareness. I think when you read the book, you will see what really does go on, and you can actually live the journey of the maid. Her name in the book is Anna. They're anonymous names, but she is a real life person. It is a fictional book, but it is based on true stories that were intertwined with the other stories. And another thing we're trying to do is, you know, I'm, I'm a little person in a big world, but I'm trying to make for sure that number one, we bring awareness by the book, bring awareness by having the opportunity to share with you, Dr. Gary, thank you for allowing me to share, to share this and another thing we're trying to do is I'm trying as a chief deputy to to see what we can do, even in our world, uh, as, in, as a department of insurance. Like, how can we make it better? Um, for one thing is we've got to make for sure that a lot of uh, insurance companies do not see this as a, as a, a claim, a paid claim. So uh, hotels uh, now are being sued because when it's happening in their hotel, they, they get a and once once there's a victim that actually gets released, you know they have liability. So I mean, they have liability concerns. Like a hotel would have liability concerns. I'm not an attorney, so I can't say they have liability, but they have a need for defense, and there's no coverage for that. So looking at how can we in an industry allow for there to be some type of policy that will help cover them? Because if we don't find a way to help there to be uh, for their insurance policy to cover their defense, 
then they will probably continue to be concerned about making awareness because when you're aware of something, you become liable. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's, you know, the old saying, follow the money, right? So there's this money that's being made through these heinous acts of prostitution and, and trafficking. And by holding businesses and organizations accountable to that and making them liable for it and suing them for it, you can increase the cost of the liability to the point where they will start to police themselves because you're taking their money away from them. hit them where it hurts. And obviously we need to do that more. And the only way to do that more is for people to become more aware so that then the public can make a difference. And as, as you said, I, I wrote down a couple of things that uh, as you were talking about this is live the journey of the maid and you will hear the voice. That's right. You know, you'll hear the voice of change. And that's, that's what you're talking about is by getting that awareness out there. And, and you're in a very, it's, kind of interesting because you're in a u- unique position where you went down this path of, of awareness in your doctorate and now in a position to actually make a difference. It's been, it's been an exciting journey because I never knew, I, I didn't even, everyone knows this that knows me very well. I didn't want this job. I loved having summers off. I loved Christmas, having it off for a whole month. And I loved, I loved the fact that I could work with students, but mm-hmm. the university loaned me out to the state and, and, I've actually found that this was where I was supposed to be. And, mm. um, and now what's wonderful is I can share with the, I, I still teach at the university. So it's a great opportunity, opportunity for me to share with the students to be aware. So again, I think we together can make a difference. I love the, the quote by Helen Keller that says, alone, we can do so little, but together we can do so much. Mm. So I, I really thank you for allowing me to share what little impact I can make by just being a venue or a vehicle to share the voices of these, of these children. And I hope that everyone that hears this podcast will share um, the story of the maid and allow their voice to be heard and, and be aware of your surroundings and look at, look and read the trafficking persons report that you will find online. It will show you the tears of the countries, especially if you're going on vacation, that you can be more aware of what, what countries are more dangerous um, because you don't want to be a victim and you don't want any of your children to be a victim. Well, I think we're going to have to include the URL link to the uh, trafficking persons report in the show notes. We can do that. Thank you. So we can point people to that. So what else can we do? If, if you, if there was something that you could tell our audience the little thing, one small thing that they could do for awareness, for support, for working on this, on this challenge, this struggle. This, this is not a struggle. As I always say in leadership, our job is to allow people to struggle so that they can learn. This is suffering and suffering needs to be stopped. So what can we do? I think the first thing we can do is to make for sure that we are doing our part by talking to legislators, to lawmakers. If you can, talk to them and make for sure that we are doing everything we can with our laws. And I know we, we think, well, what other kind of laws could be changed? Well, one thing, we need more money for the police force, like the SBI, so that they can enforce uh, and do something with human trafficking. If we do not have 
the sworn police officers, like with the SBI, to work and to... What, what is the SBI? What's that stand for? The State Bureau of Investigation. So okay. the FBI and the State Bureau of Investigation. Gotcha. So we, we need to have resources for these folks. Okay. It sounds like a small thing, but it's really a huge thing because if we don't have money during COVID, there was a reported 98.66% increase in human trafficking online pursuits and, and on with the computer. And, wow. and there's a lot less money because they had less money to put towards human trafficking. So yeah. I think that's one of the things that we can do. The second okay. thing is just to be aware. And what I was saying is if you see someone that looks like that they're in need, don't be afraid to make a phone call. Mm. Make a phone call to the authorities and share that you just have a concern. Yeah. If you see something, bring it up. If it's nothing, it's nothing. But if it's something, it could be huge. It could help prevent that suffering. Yeah. Well, thank you. So, Michelle, I'm I'm not going to let you off the hook because I always ask the same question at the end of my podcasts. Okay. And I would like you to tell me if you could write a letter back to that 22-year-old Michelle or that 20-something Michelle and say, uh, Dear Michelle, what would you tell yourself? What would I tell myself? What would you tell yourself? What advice would you give Michelle in, their, in your 20s if you wrote back to yourself and you said, Dear Michelle, what would you say? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Isn't it, though? It, it's, a, <laughs> it's a really tough question. Um, yeah. 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 I, I think I, I would say I'd have to tell myself to never give up because, mm. because the journey didn't make sense. No matter what you think, it may not make sense till the end. It really, mm. um, I mean, that's just a really quick response. And I, I could probably think about that for <laughs> a long time. But there's a lot of times I wanted to give up. Mm. And, you know, working on your dissertation is not easy. Oh, well, you know, I don't know about what your uh, dissertation from hell story is, but we all have them. Right. And uh, I will tell you, I, my, my, my final year writing my dissertation, my dissertation was 245 pages of drivel, as we would say. Nobody reads it except, you know, your, your committee and maybe your mother, if she wants to read it and shake her head. <laughs> no, she didn't want to read it. And uh, I, I can remember standing in the kitchen with my wife in July of my last year. In 2008, I wrote 200, 360 out of 365 days. I'm an engineer with a reading disability, okay? So I struggled writing. I, I took five days off that year and completed my dissertation. That's less than a page a day that I completed. But like you said, never give up. But I, was, I can remember six months before I finished my dissertation, standing in front of my wife, I was in tears talking to her, yeah. in tears. And I said, this, it's been five years working on my MBA and my doctorate. Right. And I said, if I'd known it was going to be this hard, I'm not sure I would have done it. Yeah. It was, a, it was, and I'm sure that you had those moments yourself. Yeah. That's why I would say to myself, don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. No. But I like what you said. The journey didn't make sense, but you just kept moving forward. And I, and I think, uh, as I always look at these, I've got a whole bunch of quotes from you in here and I'm look, always looking for the name of the podcast. Okay. Live the journey of the maid, you know, uh, of these things, but you just, you just nailed it. I think the journey didn't make sense, 
just keep moving. And that's great advice for all of us because we don't always know where we're going to end up or what we're going to do. But if you use your talents and you focus on what you do well and you just keep moving forward. And I, th I think the other part of it is not just moving forward, but learning and educating yourself. And as we talked about earlier, when we were talking about making mistakes and learning from mistakes, if we do those things, some way, somehow we will find our passion. So I agree. Any final words, Dr. Michelle? <laughs> I just want to say thank you. Thank you for allowing me to share. That's really all I want to do is just share, just share the story. Well, we thank you so much for sharing this story and, and uh, the uh, passion behind this and the work that you do. And I know whether you stay insurance or go back in to be a professor full time or whatever you do, you'll never stop working on this. Absolutely. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. <laughs>